0: welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. does working through an autonomy, equality, and nervous system lens actually help my PDA child or teen over the long term? This is an amazing question. It's an important question. And today I'm going to provide a free training answering this question with two primary topics, the theory of change over the long term for your child's well-being mental and physical health, and nervous system health, and what we mean by radical acceptance and how it relates to the theory of change over the long-term for your child. I'm gonna start with a story from my own life to start illustrating this concept. Okay, so when my son hit burnout, which I did not understand as such, when he was approximately the age of four and a half, when we were living in Washington, D.C., I did not know what to do and I was desperate. You know, I had gone through the one, two, three magic, the times out, the positive discipline. I had been for the past couple years been hearing from the pediatrician how I needed to cook home cooked meals, that I shouldn't be working so much and that's why my son wasn't eating. I know, I was like, how is this happening? That I needed to be more consistent in my approach to my parenting and that was the reason he was so oppositional and defiant. And I was really reaching a breaking point at the point where he was behaving as if he were a feral animal. And I was actually scared of him. Like I would, even though he was only four and a half, I would take my then newborn baby and run out into the street while my husband stayed behind to try and deescalate things. But I couldn't like leave the room even for a second to go to the bathroom. I'd have to bring my baby with me because I would the first couple times this happened, I would come back and he was like had a pillow over the face of my newborn or like scratch trying to scratch his eyeballs, etc. OK, so this was like a pretty extreme situation. And I had reached out to a dear friend from college who is a DIR floor time trained play therapist who works with children with learning differences and disabilities and autistic children. I didn't know anything about sensory processing disorders. I had never heard the term self-regulation. I didn't know what occupational therapists or or speech language pathologists did. I didn't even really fully understand what she did, but she was like, look, come to Chicago, stay with my family. I'm going to hook you up with an evaluation with these colleagues of mine that I really trust. And we're going to figure out some more clarity for your family. Okay. And I was like scared to even take my son on a plane. I remember I packed all of these band-aids because he would always have these like ailments or illnesses or get hurt, even though like nothing was happening. So I had a whole like first aid kit and it was like my go-to of like, here's a band-aid. Right. So I went to see her. We went to see an occupational therapist. They did an evaluation for about two and a half hours. And I remember distinctly, he got into this hammock swing for a long time and he sort of wouldn't get out of the hammock swing and and the speech pathologist prompted me very gently like why don't you get in there with him which is not something i would have thought of because my intuition was obscured by all of the trauma of like not knowing how to interact with him so i got in and he put his cheek against my face and my face was against his and The therapist pointed that out. Like, look at that co regulation. It was the first time I'd heard that term as well, right? I know many of you probably started out from scratch with all this stuff. I mean, I certainly did. This was not my area of expertise or interest. (laughs) But one of the most powerful things that weekend with my dear friend was actually watching her parent, her son, who was around the same age, and she was using a non behavioral approach. She had been in as a professional. The autism space since she was, before she even graduated from high school, okay? And she had started out her career in applied behavioral therapy and in a residential facility and really had been steeped in that dimension of therapy for autism, right? And she took a turn, realized that this, like, regardless of PDA, was not aligned with her values and went the direction of DIR floor time, which is developmental individual differences based and relationship based. So it's like another school of thought. And she applied a lot of this parenting to her own son where it was like not rewards and consequences, no punishment, lots of co-regulation. And it was just my mind was kind of blown because I was like, oh, there's a different way to do this, right? Like I wasn't on social media or anything. I wasn't like following gentle parenting. I just didn't even know that this is a concept. And I was like, wow, okay. And so I observed her and she taught me and I a- asked all these questions as the academic that I was and she gave me books, etc. one of which was The Explosive Child and Tilt Parenting and all the things. So I came home from Chicago and told my husband, we are no longer doing timeouts, rewards and consequences or sanctions. We're going to be doing co regulation and we're going to be doing, you know, like a safe sensory corner. And he was just kind of like, okay, what, what, what? Because I had been so all in and tr- I'm trying to be consistent with the traditional parenting stuff because of the pediatricians for like two years. Right. And I remember standing in the kitchen with my husband trying to explain and he was like but what's the theory of change casey like what will this get us? And where are we going? Like, is this is this actually what we're supposed to do in the face of my son screaming and throwing things at our face and locking us in the basement like he did with my husband and hitting and screaming. So he was like, what's the theory of change? And I remember like my face flushing and feeling my own like activation because as an academic and someone who's worked in academic settings and like is very Pro research, I did not have a theory of change. Okay. I was just like, intuitively, this feels like a different approach. We can experiment. Like, I just need you to get on board. And he did, of course. And now we can laugh about it. But at that point, I did not have a theory of change. And so, I have spent the last four plus years scouring (laughs) the literature and patterns and, and understanding of trauma and the polyvagal theory and child brain development and all of that to develop a theory of change that underlies the approach that I teach parents, okay? So it's not, I want to be really clear that it's not a parenting philosophy, and I feel strongly about that because I feel like there's a connotation of a right or wrong way, whereas really we're here to understand what works for your child's unique brain, and even within the PDA community, that's going to be different. Okay, so I want to talk to you about this theory of change, which underpins the work that I do, because I think, especially for more logically minded, linear thinkers, potentially the dads who are not quite on board, this can be very helpful to understand the deep why behind what you're doing and what the long game is, okay? Because in the short term and in the moment, it's going to feel very paradoxical to you and like it's the wrong thing to do, okay? So Let's first talk about the root cause of what is provoking your child's behavior, quote, behavior that you see on the surface, okay? So for most of you, you're here because your child is avoidant, they avoid demands, but also because you see fight, flight, or freeze behavior, although you might not be looking at it through that lens. What you see is, or experience sensorially yourself or physically is, Screaming, hitting, biting, growling, hissing, throwing things, breaking things, you know, slamming on doors with heads and legs and feet and hands, etc. Okay? That's the fight. Then, There's the flight, which is like, I'm running away from you. I'm running away from you in the back of the car. I'm gonna kick you if you come close to me. If you have a teenager, this is gonna look a little bit different. It might be more verbal, but you might have them walk away from you, ignore you. You know, For younger kids walking on the edges of windowsills, on the tops of couches, on the tops of cars when they're avoiding you or going places that they don't want to go. And then you have freeze, which can range from like crying, going into a turtle shell, selective mutism, disassociation, they're not there, lethargy, et cetera, okay? So that's like some of the surface level behavior that we see and understand. And what's that related to? That in and of itself is not behavior in the sense of like they are premeditating this behavior, which it, it can look like they are, but it's not. It's happening on a survival level, Okay, so what's happening in the brain? I have my little brain picture for you. Okay, so all of us have the limbic system and the amygdala is within it, and that's the part of the brain that perceives whether you're safe or not. Okay, and that part of the brain operates a lot faster than the thinking part of your brain, which is the frontal lobe. In the frontal lobe, that's where we empathize. It's where we have our like sequencing, rational thought, understanding cause and effect, learning, etc. Okay, so all of us have these two parts of the brain. What's unique about a PDA brain is that what activates this survival mechanism is not necessarily needing to be a hurricane, a lion chasing you, getting held up in a dark alley, neglect, abuse car crash, which is something that would activate any of our nervous systems. And if we have more sensitive nervous systems, because we're neurodivergent, anxious by genetics, we're going to have more sensitivity there, but not necessarily, unless you're PDA, the root cause of whenever the subconscious... Automatic, before your frontal lobe catches up, perceives that you have lost autonomy, freedom and choice, or equality to you or someone around you. That is what's going to precipitate that nervous system mechanism, which then leads to the fight-flight-freeze okay so when we see the fight flight freeze that is what's happening externally what we can observe but what's going on in the body every time that limbic system is perceiving on a subconscious level i've lost autonomy equality freedom choice it's telling the nervous system we have to stay alive okay even though there's no actual lion it's like we have to stay alive okay so if we're going to fight flight the brain is telling the body Release adrenaline, release cortisol, blood rushes to the extremities so you can run or fight, right? Metabolism speeds up. You want to get all the fluids and excess out of your body if you're going to run or fight. So there might be diarrhea, there might be digestive issues, there might be vomiting. My son vomits. And when I'm anxious, I have to go to the bathroom, right? It's just part of our survival drive. Okay, so that's what's happening physiologically every single time the brain is perceiving those losses of autonomy or equality. If your child has a more internalized expression, it might be more freeze which is a different physiological response. It may be endorphins are releasing because it's more of a shock state, right? And if the the child gets bit by the lion, you don't want to feel all the pain, you're like playing dead, but it's a survival response. Again, like none of this is happening in the like, they're doing this to get X, like they want attention, or they're doing this because they know I'll respond in this way. Or, you know, they're trying to get their needs met in this inappropriate way way or there's this like avoidant attachment or anxious attachment and they're like seeking attention like none of that is happening that's never what you would say to a person who was you know held up in a dark alley (laughs) with a gun you wouldn't be like oh they're attention seeking with that screaming right there right and I'll give you a story from my own life and I often think about this in order to help me understand my son in the difficult moments because all of us have moments where we're like How can this possibly be a reflexive subconscious response, right? So when I used to travel in my former life, I did a lot of work in Latin America and I was in the subway after like at the end of the subway lines schedule with my friend traveling in Argentina and we were alone on the platform and we got held up at knife point by two male individuals trying to take our purses. What did I do? I didn't think about it. I just started screaming, hitting, pulling my purse, kicking, etc. My best friend started laughing. Neither of us thought about it. It just happened. And we we ended up running and getting out of their flight without getting hurt. And afterwards, we were both like shaky and like our bodies were just doing the physiological things that bodies do after they've The body has perceived like I'm gonna die, okay? And I remember her reflecting like, "Why did I laugh?" Like she was so mad at herself, and I, I was like, "I didn't even think about what I did." Like you didn't either. It was just a survival response. And I know some of you, because you've asked, and I've seen it with my own son. You're like, "Why are they laughing right now?" But it's just like a survival response, okay? So imagine for a second that this is happening to the body and in the brain. Not just when you're in a subway station in Argentina or getting in a car crash or, you know, being held up at gunpoint or whatever it is that's setting off your survival response. What if as a child or a teen, Every time you're not allowed to have a choice or you feel like someone is putting themselves above you as an authority figure or in stature or composure or power, that your brain subconsciously is going to tell your body like you're going to die and it responds as such, okay? That's a lot of times, right? Even if you don't see it as a parent, often it's internalized. It's it's internalized and comes out later, which is where the masking dynamic comes in of like, well, they seem fine at school, but then they come home and there's these explosive meltdowns or equalizing behavior that's really difficult to manage. So what happens over time when not only is the child or teen perceiving this danger on a subconscious level and perhaps and likely not understanding why their body's doing that or why they're responding in that way, it builds and builds and builds over time. It accumulates. Okay, so threshold of tolerance. So all of us have that, the point at which we get activated over and over and over again, and then we hit the point where it's too much for our bodies, it's too much for our psyche, and we just start to experience trauma, okay? So all of us have that, but not all of us have the neuroception that's telling us we're in danger all the time. So what happens, and this is also why some of these children and teens, it feels like as a parent, it comes on all of a sudden. You're like, did my child become PDA? Can you become PDA? Did they have an autistic regression? It's because of this cumulative aspect, okay? So imagine when they're younger, every time they have this activation, it's like building towards the threshold, but they're not there yet. And depending on how we respond, if you responded like me, you're going to be moving towards the threshold threshold quicker because I responded with more behavioral approaches, which was loss of autonomy, loss of equality, over and over and over again. If you're a gentle parent, an intuitive parent by nature, maybe they weren't moving so fast towards the threshold until they got to school. Right? And then they're down here, but they go to school and it pushes them past their threshold. And it's like, oh, right? Or they got an autism diagnosis and maybe they were down here, but then they go into behavioral therapy and it's building, 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 building. Okay, so what does that do? What does that do when we push the child past the threshold of tolerance? It means they're operating from this part of their brain most of the time, right? So remember what we said, this part of the brain cannot access learning, cannot access empathy, cannot access rational thought. And so a lot of times we think these kids have lower skills than they do and that their developmental timeline, it might be, delayed according to like neurotypical timelines, or it might be that they just can't access the frontal lobe because they're spending so much time in their limbic system, right? Like a traumatized individual with PTSD would, okay? So if we know this mechanism, if we know the root cause, we know the mechanism. Root cause, autonomy, inequality, losses, in the neuroception. Mechanism, the same as trauma, nervous system response, fight, flight, freeze. And then we know about neuroplasticity and what happens in these parts of the brain. And like an intro level book that you can read about this. I didn't invent it. Read um, Dr. Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson's Whole Brain Child as a starting point. What happens is our kids are in the downstairs brain or the survival brain or the limbic system most of the time. And we're continuing to respond to them with things that are making them more and more entrenched into the limbic system. Okay, so of course... We're going to feel like they've had a regression. We're going to feel like they have no empathy. We're going to feel like they have no skills. And unfortunately, what do we do? We seek out therapy and we seek out solutions, which often drive them further into the limbic system. What do we do about this? Okay, And this is when we take a different path. And it feels radical, but it's actually based in brain science, which is like the whole point is how can we get our children out of the limbic system and back to their frontal lobe so they can access rational thought, learning, movement, accessing basic needs, all the things they need to have a life where they can thrive, okay? But it's a long-term approach because wherever you are in your journey, all of you, and I'm not saying this to fault you at all, it's just, of course, you didn't know until they hit their threshold, right, that they were PDA, but we have to undo... (laughs) (laughs) this cumulative nervous system activation, we have to start accommodating the root cause to lower the cumulative nervous system activation. So that's not changing their brain in the sense that they're not PDA. It just means through an accommodation approach of really looking at that root cause of equality and autonomy and nervous system safety, that even though they may activate when there's a no, a boundary, a difficult moment, they're not gonna be in constant fight, flight, freeze, or not be able to access their basic needs like toileting independently, eating, sleeping through the night, safety and hygiene, right? But what we have to do is really hone in on the granular day-to-day, moment-to-moment choice point that each of us have every moment, which is the radical acceptance piece. And I'm gonna get to that. So over time, Every interaction, and I don't want this to feel like pressure. I want this to feel like an opportunity because it's cumulative. It's not about perfection of just like every time we have this choice point of how we can respond, we can either accommodate and move them to the frontal lobe in that moment or we can drive them unfortunately deeper into the limbic system. But the good news is, is that over and over and over again, every time we accommodate, what are we doing? We're creating and strengthening a neural pathway back to the frontal lobe over and over and over again. Okay, we're also developing trust, felt safety and trust and connection. So not about emotions, actually feeling safe in their bodies around us, which is also what will facilitate long-term collaboration and problem solving, right? But like, for example, you can't just jump right into collaborative problem solving, which is an awesome tool. Like I love Ross Green, he's amazing. I read The Explosive Child, I love his work. But if they're down here, we can't use the tool, right? Like like they're not able to learn. They're not able to collaboratively problem solve. Potentially we're employing the scripts of plan A, B, and C using direct questions. And what do direct questions do? Loss of autonomy and equality. Maybe we're coming into their room and being like, hey, I want to collaboratively problem solve with you. What is that perceived in the brain? A loss of autonomy and equality, right? So it's not, that these are not great tools. It's just that we first have to start with like, where is your child in terms of where they are in their brain and sometimes it takes years to like strengthen that neural pathway so what happens when they're back in their frontal lobe they can learn they can empathize they can access the skills that you didn't think that they had i mean it depends on the kid like some have other things going on some might be have more you know, higher social communication needs and therefore more like traditionally or typically autistic, but we can't necessarily address those well to support them until they're back in this part of the brain. Right. And this is why I don't think of therapy as a binary because it's not like, should I do therapy and what therapy? It depends. Like, it depends on are you a year into the accommodation approach and you can actually use collaborative problem solving to talk about what they want to work on because you they're most of the time in the frontal lobe and you have this trust developed. I mean, or around medication or whatever. This is the precursor to that, okay? So you're like, okay, Casey, that sounds great. Let's do it. How do I do it? <laughs> of course. So that is exactly... What I try and put on social media, but it's a comprehensive approach, so it's like a reel's not going to cut it. I mean, of course, you can like DIY by going through all my tiles and TikToks and podcasts and YouTubes. However, the Paradigm Shift program is designed to give you the foundation of this approach, okay, to actually get you the tools you need to implement this long term. So let's talk about briefly here, though, what do we mean by implementation? Because often parents are on board until it comes to implementation this is for me too because you're faced in the moment with the trade-offs okay because so often much of what we're doing here it's like there's a cost it's a cost to the kid or it's a cost to you and it feels like robbing peter to pay paul so let's talk about implementation i want you to ask yourself are you actually implementing on a day-to-day moment radical acceptance and accommodation not just lowering demands, but honing in on the true root cause of activation, which is autonomy, equality, and nervous system are what is what you're doing designed specifically to move them out of the limbic system over and over and over again, and are you consistent or is our conditioning getting in the way and For me, I have to confront this question all the time. this is not not like me as a guru being like. I know better than you. It's like I'm constantly thinking through, like, is that the fear talking, Casey? Or are you remembering the logic of this long term approach and what you've seen with your coaching clients and your own son? I have a very privileged viewpoint with a bird's eye view because I have witnessed hundreds of parents move through this journey. But if I I hadn't, it would be more based on a leap of faith. Right. So let's talk about radical acceptance, because this is a key component. And and often when we talk about radical acceptance, it's like, well, of course I I accept my kid, but that's not that radical. What I'm talking about is in the moment accommodations. Okay, so let's talk about examples. When I post things that I actually do in my home, which are based on de-escalation and moving my child back to the frontal lobe. I always get a ton of like, you're teaching them that they can act like that, right? You're teaching them to be abusive. You're teaching them X, Y, and Z. And it's like all of a sudden parents are triggered and they're forgetting this logic of like, they're not learning anything they're here. I'm just using an accommodation in the moment to get them back here so that we can solve the problem and lower nervous system activation. Okay, so let's get through these examples. Okay, so the first thing we have to do is radically accept that you have a choice point and I cannot change this and you cannot change this, which is you are always activating or accommodating your child. You're either driving them deeper into the limbic system or towards the frontal lobe. There's no in between, okay? So in the moments, Like, for example, when your child says, like, you're a bitch, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to get activated. No judgment. Of course you are because you're spending your whole life trying to figure out how to support your kid. You've probably made all these sacrifices and they're criticizing you. What's your conditioning going to tell you and your instinct? I need to tell them they can't act like that. I need to teach them so that they don't continue to do this outside of the home, okay? But then... We're forgetting, you can, you can correct them, absolutely. Like you can correct them, you can give them a punishment, you can set a boundary, but what's gonna happen? And this I can't change, and this is triggering because this is the radical acceptance piece. If you do that, it will drive them back down here. That's how the disability works, okay? So what's the alternative? De escalation, accommodation. In implementation, it feels very uncomfortable to say, like, yeah, it sounds like, you know, you're having a hard time with my parenting, or just like, let it go, right? That's not a natural response as a parent. That would be a diffusion accommodation. But what happens when parents are confronted with that example? You get triggered. You want to argue with me, (laughs) right? And the reason you get triggered and want to argue with me is because you're actually wanting to argue with your child's disability. You don't want it to be like that and I don't either. I don't I don't wish that my child had this trade-off of like if I stop him from hurting his little brother, he there will be a cost to his nervous system and he will activate. That doesn't mean I don't still set a boundary, but like in accumulation there are many times when I choose to accommodate because I know about the threshold of tolerance. Because I know about the long game, and I will say, I do go back based on the trust that we've built over years and discuss it when he's in a regulated moment in the frontal lobe, but it's all happening in the moment, right, when we're getting activated and we're not wanting to radically accept that trade-off, that choice point right? So it's not this like in the ether, do I, are you neurodiversity affirming? And do you accept your child? And if you struggle with anything that you're not radically accepting them? No, you're accepting the trade-off. Okay. And this is where parents get stuck. Let me give you some more examples. Yesterday, my son is on the couch asking for pirate's booty. He's like, I want pirate, pirate's booty. So I'm like, okay, I'll go get you some pirate's booty. Grab it, bring it to him. I said, I wanted popcorn. What's our instinct? To correct right to say no you said you wanted pirate's booty i want to teach him he can't lie and he can't change he can't like treat me like a maid and all the things but like again i can't teach him anything in that moment just because of the way his brain works so i have to make a decision of like am i gonna use this moment is this moment important enough for me to activate his nervous system? Or is it based on what I call a fear cost? Okay, so I teach parents to think through and make decisions and practice through what's called a cost-benefit decision-making framework. And often where parents get stuck is when they're trying to discern, not in the heat of the moment, how to accommodate and actually do this, they get lost in the fear cost. Okay, so like, for example, in the moment with this popcorn and pirate's booty, The fear cost of not correcting him is if he, if I don't correct him now, he will continue to talk to me like this. And then he will continue to treat others in his life like that and be abusive to women. He'll never have a partner of any sort. He'll never be independent or operate independently in the world. And I'll have to continue serving him pirate's booty and popcorn until the end of time. Okay. That's the fear cost of like, if this happens, then this, then this, then this, then this, rather than just honing in on the moment, which is like, okay, what's the true cost of me setting a boundary or correcting him? The true cost, his nervous system activates and depending on where his threshold is, he might be getting close to not being able to eat at all. That's the true cost. And the benefit of me accommodating him is that he might be more likely to eat and stay away from his threshold and to away from like equalizing behavior in the future or towards his sibling, okay? And of course, there's a cost to me, which is, you know, if I'm not viewing it correctly for myself of like, you know, my own activation and my own like self-doubt. But at this point, I just see it as data. I'm just like, oh, data, his nervous system's activated. I'm not gonna correct him. It just tells me more about where he is with his threshold of tolerance. I don't take it personally. Okay. Which takes practice over time. That's something we learn through either the progress with PDA workshop or the paradigm shift program. It's just data. So parents often get lost in the fear cost, but the tool is meant to bring you intensely into the present moment. So another example is like when they tell you it's your fault, when they spill a cup across the room, or when you walk by them and they make a mistake on a video game and they start screaming at you, right? Again, We have to radically accept the choice point of like, I can accommodate or I can activate. And like, you want to do the thing that will activate them because you're frustrated and you're human, right? And this is why it takes practice. But at its core, it's radically accepting that you only have two pathways and the child only has two pathways or parts of their brain that we're able to deal with, right? And that sucks to have to accept because there are so many trade-offs and difficulties and it goes against a lot of our conditioning about what it means to be a good parent. So as parents move through either a coaching container with me or a paradigm shift program, There are other places that we use the concept of radical acceptance. So I want to break it down for you guys because I think this is a very powerful concept. I'm going to illustrate this with an example from my own life. Okay, so here's my truth. I really don't like playing with kids. I don't like it. I don't like playing with my own kids. I don't like playing with other people's kids. I find it tedious, boring, and like my mind goes a million different directions and it's hard for me to stay present and then I feel bad about myself and guilty and I'm like, holy shit, I'm a parent coach. And like, I'm supposed to like be helping other parents, you know, play with their kids. However, what I see this sensation as my own nervous system activation, the thoughts in my head that I just described to you and the emotions associated with of like, that's just part of the human experience. These are just bubbling up and I can see it. I can observe myself of like, okay, like, I don't like playing with kids. You know, I get jittery and a little manic myself and that's what's happening in my body and then I feel shame because my whole job is to help parents like one of the things I do is help parents learn how to play with their kids and I notice it and I don't avoid it right but I also don't identify with it of like, I'm a bad person. I'm, I'm a fraud. I guess I just suck at playing. So I'm going to give up on it. I see it. I let it pass and let it move through. I radically accept and bring loving kindness to that aspect of my human experience. That's what I want you to do for yourself as well. Right. And once we accept that, it's like, okay, I don't like playing. Does that mean I'm not gonna play? Does that mean I'm not gonna like spend hours on the floor playing the same train game with the same kid over and over and over again? Of course not. But instead of avoiding it or hating myself, I just name and observe exactly what's going on in my body, emotions, and thoughts. And this is like from the Buddhist practice of like observe without judgment and then bring loving kindness to it. We let go of avoidance, but we also let go of grasping of like, this is my identity and I'm sticking with it. So like a tool I've developed based on this awareness of myself is I set my Fitbit for 10 minute increments. I view it as a spiritual practice and I set it for 10 minutes and I'm like, I'm gonna spend the next 10 minutes totally focused and engaged on my child. And I am going to like look at his eyes lashes and the way that his little cheeks move as he's telling me about the same little boxcar a hundred times, right? And it's harder when you have a child who's activated and dysregulated, but I use the same technique. When I was with my son, my older PDA son, it might be three minutes at a time, right? And then it buzzes and I do another three minutes, okay? So often when parents come into my world or my containers or programs, it's like they're finally ready to stop avoiding, but where things can get sticky and I'm not going to let you get stuck is like, okay, now... We're not avoiding this grief and rage and resentment, but we're going to stay in it. We're going to hold on to it and grasp onto it and identify with it. We're all going to get negative and like just make this who we are, right? But I'm not going to create... A scenario for you guys where that's going to be the vibe. I want you guys to allow, bring loving kindness and move, right? We're going to move through it. So you can stop avoiding, but you can also have the tools to not grasp and identify with it, which is what allows you to create more space for creativity and problem solving outside of what you can't change, which is also often what we focus on right like if I just spent all my time being like Casey you suck as a person like you need to make yourself like playing I would get stuck and not actually playing okay so where does this come out when I'm working with families the like examples of radical acceptance where it's like maybe you stop avoiding or denying that something is the way that they it, it is but then getting stuck in it places parents get stuck. And I've gotten stuck in all these places and I'm speaking from experience. So this is not a judgment of you. And I still struggle with this. And this is why I do so much Buddhist meditation of like practicing this stuff, right? So you get stuck in the shoulds, right? My child's nervous system should not be this way. I shouldn't have to make a trade-off between correcting my child for calling me a bitch and their nervous system activating to the point where it disables them. Like, yeah, (laughs) it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't have to make those decisions, but we do. It's like, I can't change that, you can't change that. That's part of the radical acceptance. And I say this shit to myself too. It's like, and I'll say it to my husband and he'll say it to me and then we'll catch ourselves and we'll move. We'll move out of the stuckness because I've trained myself to do this of like, it shouldn't be so hard. I shouldn't have to separate the kid. He should be able to listen to me when I say stop equalizing against William and destroying his things. But then he activates and he fixates and he does it. If I didn't accept that, I would still be trying to like force them to be together. Where else my partner won't get on board? How do I make them get on board? The school should be accommodating. My parents or the grandparents should understand this. I've explained it a million times. I shouldn't feel this way. I know they have a disability. Why am I having such a hard time? Okay, so these are all examples of like, it just is. It's hard, it's unfair, it's difficult. But when we can radically accept what's true right now, we can actually stop spending all of our energy trying to change something we can't and start to see the possibilities and transcend the limitations towards change that will actually get you unstuck. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website, www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift Program.